0: So yes, as I said, I'm very happy to have the relative luxury of six whole weeks to really sink into one ta- one topic and begin to really, you could say, use the lens of anatta or not-self to explore some of the core teachings of the Buddha. Because as many of you alluded to in the check-in, this um, concept of not-self is one of the more elusive aspects of the teachings for a lot of people. And I want to say right up front that I'm not some kind of Anatta expert. <laughs> I'm not putting myself out there as Mrs. Anatta or anything like that. What I would like is for these six weeks to really be a group exploration. So the old saying that many heads are better than one definitely applies here. So we'll be really exploring this together. But what I will be doing is providing the framework to do those explorations in. So we'll be approaching this theme from a lot of different angles and perspectives. We'll be bringing in the work of some well-known, well-respected lay teachers and monastic teachers and... To begin with, I'd like to just try and situate this anatta in the context of the teaching as a whole. And I know all of you here have quite a lot of understanding of mindfulness meditation, which, as you know, is a key technique of insight or vipassana practice. Vipassana being a Pali word, Pali being a language that the Buddha's teachings were transmitted in orally for about 500 years after his death. So this Pali word vipassana means insight, usually translated as insight or clear seeing. So mindfulness is used to develop insight. Insight in a way that helps free our hearts and minds from difficulty and leads to the deepening of wisdom and compassion in the service of the deepest possible freedom, which is often referred to as nibbana or nirvana, enlightenment, awakening, liberation, and so on. So that's a one-second description of a lifetime of practice. But I want to give the bigger picture of where all of this is because as particularly mindfulness becomes more and more mainstream, the overall goal, the deeper purpose of mindfulness practice is sometimes lost. And it's a little bit ironic these days if you go to most bookstores and you go to the self-help section, you'll see dozens of books with mindfulness in the title. And it's kind of strange that they're in the self-help section because <laughs> mindfulness is intended to help us see that actually we don't, ourselves, do not need help, <laughs> not in the ways that are often presented in those books anyway. So mindfulness is the key uh, practice or method of insight. And as I think most of you know, the core text or discourse for mindfulness practice is the Satipatthana Sutta. Everybody has some familiarity with that sutta? Usually translated into English as the four foundations of mindfulness or the four domains of attention, the four establishments of awareness and so on. So the text lays out a gradual training in mindfulness and it starts with aspects of our experience that are relatively easy to pay attention to, such as the body and the breath, as we were doing in the guided meditation in the beginning. And then gradually we begin to bring in more and more aspects of our experience, more complex ones, such as thoughts and emotions, moods and mind states. And then even some of those much deeper structured layers of conditioning so our, the kind of things that form our personality habits, our self views, our world views, our beliefs and so on, our default reactions, what we might think of as our personality. So ultimately mindfulness includes absolutely every aspect of our experience. And mindfulness is intended to help us see through ignorance the ways that we normally distort and don't see clearly how we are, how the world is. So all of the different methods in the Satipatthana Sutta are devised to show us how we don't see clearly. They show us the ways that we often get caught in kind of wishful thinking about ourselves and the world. Because I think... It's true for me. Most of us most of the time tend to believe that we are stable permanent entities, living in a stable, permanent world and that world should be able to give us happiness. And when that world at least at times lets us down, we tend to take it very personally and we suffer. So those of you who are familiar with the Buddha's teachings, you might recognize in that description that I'm alluding to what are known as the three characteristics of experience, anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not self. So all the different techniques of mindfulness are designed to give us insight into these three universal characteristics. So when we look at our experience very clearly, we see that every experience we have is marked by impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not self. And just to say, I will sometimes use the Pali words because the English words, when we use just one word, they often are subtle or not so subtle distortions of what the Pali words originally were pointing to. So just to give you a slightly different flavor, sometimes those three are translated as impermanent, imperfect, and impersonal. So anicca as impermanent, dukkha as imperfect and anatta as impersonal. So you can see just in that slightly different change of words, new understandings might open up. So first of all, anicca impermanence, pointing to the truth that nothing is stable. All experience is constantly changing. Nothing lasts. And on one level, let's pretty obvious, we can't really deny that we sit down in meditation to pay attention to the breath and right there we have an in breath and an out breath and then another in breath and another out breath so just in the breath there's impermanence and then we start to notice all the different sensations in the body coming and going even things like pain which we often, we might say to ourselves I have a constant headache or I have a chronic back injury or whatever, if we really zoom in and look at those sensations, we might see that those two, on a micro level, are constantly changing. Likewise sounds, likewise thoughts, sights, emotions, every aspect of our experience, moment to moment, arising and passing away. And this is good news because if there wasn't change, we wouldn't be able to transform. We would be stuck like this, extruded forever and ever, (laughs) which I don't know about for you, but for me, that's not a very pleasant thought. So change actually does have a beneficial aspect. And for most people, change, impermanence is the most obvious aspect of the practice, the most accessible of these three characteristics. The second one is dukkha, usually translated into English as suffering, which can make it hard to grasp because sometimes we hear, for example, the first noble truth being misrepresented as life is suffering, which is not, for most people, a very appealing or even accurate. You know, most people, at times they have suffering, but they wouldn't say their life is suffering that quite often we have pleasant experiences. Just this morning, having delicious muesli and yogurt and coffee with fluffy stuff on top, that was, that was not suffering <laughs> in my book. But what this word dukkha is pointing to is actually better translated in this context as unsatisfactoriness or unreliability. Because then we can see that even pleasant experiences, If we look carefully, they often have a shadow of dukkha to them. Even in the midst of the most intensely exquisite, pleasant experience, we know it's going to change. It's not reliable. It's not lasting. And then at some point we're going to be left trying to get the next hit of pleasant experience. So this... We might grudgingly acknowledge the truth of dukkha of unsatisfactoriness but over time understanding it and accepting it more fully actually leads to greater ease and to a more sustainable happiness because when we're not caught up in trying to desperately manipulate everything out there to give us happiness we don't get so caught in the ups and downs the highs and lows the Buddha invited us instead to turn our energy inwards to our hearts and minds and to cultivate the skillful mental states that are a much more reliable source of happiness. So when we can withdraw our energy from des- desperately manipulating the external world and instead cultivate states such as generosity, kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity, truthfulness, the paramis that many of you are familiar with, those are much more sustainable forms of happiness and they don't leave us dependent or addicted to conditions out there being a certain way in order for us to be happy. So as the practice deepens and we see the truth of dukkha or unsatisfactoriness more and more clearly we can also start to see this third universal characteristic of anatta or not-self. And just to say straight away that like suffering, the word not-self for most people doesn't have very pleasant connotations. It might sound incomprehensible, confusing. We try to make sense of it intellectually and just get more and more tangled up in it. So just as a beginning working definition, we need to understand that the term self that's included in not-self is itself a source of confusion because what the Buddha was pointing to with the word self in his uh, circumstances is not what Western psychology is referring to as self. So right there, there's often a, a fundamental confusion because in Western psychology, we know it's desirable to have a healthy sense of self. The Buddha's not negating that. So sometimes when people hear not self, they think, oh, I'm supposed to somehow erase my personality or become some kind of non-entity with no life or just some gray amorphous blob. And so <laughs> Even if that was possible, it's definitely not what the Buddha was pointing to here. In fact, although it might sound paradoxical, the more we deeply understand not-self, the healthier sense of self we can have in Western psychological terms. So the self that the Buddha was pointing to in the context of the India of his day, I understand that um, in the Indian philosophical and religious traditions that were common then, the word self was pointing to what was understood to be a fixed permanent essence or soul that was at the center of each living being and that was reincarnated lifetime after lifetime after lifetime. So there was a sense of something permanent in here somehow that was continuous over lives. And the Buddha was saying, no, if you understand the truth of impermanence in any moment, a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, physical sensations, mental responses. That's all that's going on moment to moment to moment. And there is no solid, fixed entity inside that to whom all this is happening. So that's what he was pointing to. There's no fixed, stable, permanent me at the center of the universe. There's just an ever-changing flow of experiences to which we usually habitually ascribe a sense of someone okay so that's quite a lot of ground we've covered already what I would like to do is just take a few minutes for any questions or comments about what I've said so far then we can take about a 15 minute break and then we'll come back I'll offer a little bit more on not self and then have time for some written exercises and small group practice. Okay.